Chapter 35, Part 2 of Autobiography, Memories and Experiences, Volume 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Michelle Fry, Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Autobiography, Memories and Experiences, Volume 2 by Moncure Conway. Chapter 35, Part 2 In 1872, the announcement that Mark Twain was to lecture in St. George's Hall caused a flutter of curiosity. His reputation was wide in England, but it appeared singular that instead of appearing, like Artemis Ward and other American entertainers, at Egyptian Hall or some popular place, he should select the most fashionable hall in London and charge high prices for admission. The hall was crowded with fashionable people in evening dress, of whom few, if any, had ever seen Mark. He came on the platform in full dress, with the air of a manager announcing a disappointment, and stammered out apologies. Mr. Clemens had landed at Liverpool, and had fully hoped to reach London in time, but, etc. The murmurs were deep and threatened to be loud, when Mark added that he was happy to say that Mark Twain was present and would now give his lecture. Loud applause and laughter greeted him, and he proceeded to mention several subjects he had thought of for his lecture. Quote, but since my arrival, I have found the English people so frantic in their interest in the Sandwich Islands. The sentence was cut short by an explosion of laughter. Quote, but before describing the Sandwich Islands, he resumed, and that was the last we heard of the islands. The lecture was brimful of amusing inventions of far western life, given with admirable gravity and action. After telling about a wild game of poker, he suddenly became unctuous and added, All that was long ago. I never gamble now, sotto voce, unless I can make something by it. So after a narrative about a duel, he said in an exalted tone, but I never fight duels now. If a man insults me, do I challenge that man? Oh, no, uplifting his eyes piously. I take that man by the hand and with soft, persuasive words lead him to a dimly lighted apartment and kill him. The audience was in an ecstasy of delight and laughter from first to last. Our Savage Club gave Mark a grand dinner. It was not usual for us to come in evening dress, and Mark, who was in full dress, began with, Pardon these clothes. After speaking of Hyde Park, he got off a satire so bold that it quite escaped the Englishman. I admired that magnificent monument, i.e. to the Prince Consort, which will stand in all its beauty when the name it bears has crumbled into dust. The impression was that this was a tribute to Albert the Good, and I had my laugh arrested by the solemnity of those around me. Indeed, one or two Americans present with whom I spoke considered it a mere slip, and that Mark meant to say that the prince's fame would last after the monument had crumbled. The death of Mrs. Clemens at the Villa di Quarto, Florence, announced as I write, June 1904, brings to me cherished memories of my long friendship with her and Mark Twain. I first really knew them in their beautiful home in Hartford, Connecticut, where I passed some happy days in 1876. 
the grounds with their gardens trees flowers were such as one might look for in surrey england as a result of centuries of culture but the house they surrounded represented the consummate american taste and art in showing me to my dainty room mark pointed out the various tubes for calling up servants coachmen firemen etc there's one somewhere for the police i believe he said peering around one morning when i was writing in my room mark walked softly in holding a letter Quote, here's a fellow who has for some time been trying to get my autograph under the pretense of business i have to answer his notes but am playing a game mrs clemens has been writing my replies but just for a change we want you to write one the brief note being dictated and signed s l clemens per m d c then directed mark went out with a triumphant smile in the afternoon when we were at billiards a boy of ten years came in with his autograph book and mark laid down his cue and carefully wrote his contribution every day we saw charles dudley warner and his wife near neighbors and in the evening reverend dr twitchell came in in no country have i met a more delightful man in conversation than twitchell and his ministerial adventures if printed would add a rich volume to the library of american humor mrs clemens was not only beautiful but a gracious hostess her clear candid eyes saw everything her tact was perfect and if she entered the great strong mark in his stormiest mood would alight as if a gentle bird in her hand in eighteen seventy mark twain's reputation was mainly western and when he proposed to marry the daughter of mr jarvis langdon of elmira new york this gentleman as i have heard desired to know something about his personal character according to my informant mark sent mr langdon a long list of names and addresses adding quote, any of these persons will certify that i have committed all the known crimes of course i do not vouch for the exactness of this anecdote mrs harriet beecher stowe was residing in hartford and one evening perhaps her birthday some young people made up a group of jarley waxworks for her amusement mark agreed to be the showman and we called on her under the pretext of my desire to have a talk with her the old lady was in fine spirits and glad to hear from me about the argyles and other english friends when she was startled by the invasion of costumed figures mark well advised concerning each character he was to introduce began with a knight in full armor saying as if aside bring on that tin shop then proceeded with a romance of this knight's gallant achievements it was all charming and i never forget the evident affection for mark felt by his neighbors when i sailed for england i carried with me for his london publishers the manuscript of tom sawyer i read it on the ship and then recognized that mark twain had entered on a larger literary field two or three years later clemens and his wife came to london and charles flower of avonbank mayor of stratford-on-avon begged me to bring them there for a visit mrs clemens was an ardent shakespearean and mark twain determined to give her a surprise he told her that we were going on a journey to epworth and persuaded me to connive with the joke by writing to charles flower not to meet us himself but send his carriage on arrival at the station we directed the driver to take us straight to the church when we entered and mrs clemens read on shakespeare's grave good friend for jesus sake forbear she started back exclaiming heavens where am i 
mark received her reproaches with an affluence of guilt but never did lady enjoy a visit more than that to avonbank mrs charles flower nee martineau took mrs clemens to her heart and contrived that every social or other attraction of that region should surround her at a dinner company given to these dear friends at inglewood our house in london mrs crashaw brought out a toy leaping frog which she had found in paris mark was more amused than i had ever seen him he got down on his hands and knees and followed the leaping automaton all about the room early in eighteen seventy nine i think i was in paris and when strolling along the champs elysees overtook mark twain we were both going to call on the american minister i asked mark what he was writing well he began it's about this a man sets out from home on a long journey to do some particular thing but he does everything except what he set out to do he and his family were at the hotel normandy to which i at once transferred my lodgings mark was working steadily indeed hard on a tramp abroad and i had the happiness of making myself useful to his wife in seeing paris in the evening he read us passages he had written and the tact and insight displayed by his wife in her comments were admirable he worked in the evening and could not go with us to theatres but on mardi gras about midnight he and i started out in a voiture and looked in on a dozen fancy balls bret hart i met now and then and we gave a large dinner party at hamlet house in his honour froude regarded him as the finest product of the far west and william black was always seeking to have him in his house or on his yacht bret hart's consulship at glasgow was a sort of joke william black told me that once when he was returning from a tour with hart as they slowly entered a city bret said what huge ugly place is this it is said black the city in which you have been council four years bret hart told my wife that he was coming to her next monday afternoon and she probably mentioned it to some friends but he did not come and when chancing to meet him i alluded to the disappointment he asked forgiveness and said i will come next monday even though i promise when i first made acquaintance with the london theatres eighteen sixty three buckstone was still holding the foremost place in that kind of transitional drama between farce and comedy of which warren in boston was the chief representative of course i could not tolerate the notion that anybody could equal warren my first love but i could not help admitting that buckstone was fairly the peer of burton indeed i think that he brought out more fully than burton the whole sense as well as fun of the serious family there were in london some half-dozen clergymen that is of the english church who were theatre-goers and were troubled at the alienation of the stage from their profession they made a gallant effort to bridge the chasm by founding the church and stage guild i gladly responded to an invitation to unite in this movement and attended several of the reunions held in a hall in westminster a special effort was made to secure the attendance of those who might suppose themselves especially ostracized such as the ballet girls these all came dressed with a certain prudishness which amusingly contrasted with the decolletage of the clergyman's ladies but this did not prevent edmund yates from printing in the world a satire entitled virtue in tights 
i do not remember meeting any of the leading actors there and this may have had no more significance than the fact that they had no evenings for their dinner companies except sundays i think however there was among dramatists and leading actors fear of any such alliance at any rate i myself soon gave up my connection with the movement for fear of stage puritanization already the english theatre had none too much freedom the finest french plays had much of their pith removed to suit london and in fact the separation between church and state superficial under catholicism is a birthmark of protestantism the theatre by all dogmatic logic is the devil's pulpit but it is ethically valuable as the very organ by long evolution of that human nature which protestantism pronounces accursed the english theatre instead of suffering under the evil eye of religion had steadily developed human sympathies and principles it was worth going to the cheap theatres sadler's wells adelphi victoria shoreditch grand if only to see the villain joyous under his hurricane of hisses and the virtuous hero encouraged by exclamations recalling the methodist conventicle but in the higher ranks of dramatic art there had been developed a sort of composite character a mixture of drollery and pathos whose supreme expression is in our beloved joseph jefferson the master however had his forerunners and among these might be placed charles matthews he was a wonderful artist even in the old-fashioned comedies replete with cynicism he could hear and there by an accent a look a slight gesture give a far-reaching touch of feeling at times one might almost suspect him of putting in gags to the old plays this however he never did there had grown up a public sentiment about charles matthews something like that felt about joseph jefferson in the fall of eighteen seventy two his engagement at the gaiety theatre in london was memorable although some of us went at first mainly from homage to the most venerable comedian of the time we continued to attend every play in his repertoire by fascination instead of being in decline he had matured like old wine his movement on the stage was like that of a youth the engagement was a continuous ovation it was supposed that it must have made him a millionaire and he had to issue a card which began mr charles matthews presents his compliments to the whole human race and begs to state that much as he loves his fellow-creatures he finds it impossible to provide for the necessities of even the small population of london alone j l toole i knew personally and in his own home he was an amiable gentleman of general culture and in him one might recognize the many qualities of head and heart that went to the making of a unique comedian Toole drew out tears of sympathy and of laughter simultaneously. Whatever the deficiencies of a piece, he brought out all that was potential in his part with such finish that the figure remained with us as a new creation. His success showed that in the line of art that touches every shade of fun-making from high comedy to fantastic farce, perfect delicacy of both word and suggestion is necessary for the truest effect. No actor in London was more beloved than Toole i think the elegant drollery of toole did much to train londoners for recognition eighteen seventy seven of the exquisite touches of joseph jefferson in such pieces as lend me five shillings and the cricket on the hearth 
one afternoon i met robert browning on the street and he said i do not remember having had greater delight in the theater than last night lady carnarvon sent me a request to share her box and see an american actor and i went without any expectation the play was rip van winkle and i found myself completely captivated by his acting the charm was of a kind entirely new to me william winter had accompanied jefferson to london his reputation as a dramatic critic led to his being given a dinner a number of americans being present towards the close of the dinner while the wines were still freely circulating a loud discussion sprang up at one end of the long table and being at the other end i could not hear what was said but observed winter gesticulating and some english journalists around him similarly excited i went up to find what was the matter and an englishman said mr winter spoke of the third act in rip van winkle in which jefferson alone appears confronting the specters in the mountains he said that the acting of jefferson in that act is the finest ever known on the stage and that none of us denied but then mr winter went on to declare that it was finer than any acting that ever would be seen on the stage through all time and because some of us hesitate to accept that forecast he thinks us all donkeys any further results from this curious issue were escaped by our getting a telling speech from winter and adjourning to see jefferson's corroboration of his friend's uncompromising dictum i had for some time written occasionally for the london daily news and in eighteen sixty eight was invited by the editor mr afterwards sir thomas walker to join his editorial staff i began this regular work in august eighteen sixty eight and usually wrote twice every week i was not restricted to any class of subjects but it was expected that i would keep the paper abreast of american thought and politics soon after i began work on the daily news a serious incident occurred the united states minister reverdy johnson having accepted an invitation to the sheffield cutler's feast sat at the same table with roebuck who after dinner made a venomous speech against the united states the general opinion among americans was that their minister should have left the room roebuck said that politics in america had been relegated to buccaneers and that the best citizens had withdrawn from all connection with politics this he repeated in a letter to the times when i had controverted this a worse incident occurred the city of liverpool offered the american minister a grand banquet which he accepted among the preparations for this function it was announced that among the guests was to appear mr laird the man who built the confederate cruiser alabama my article october eighteenth eighteen sixty eight though severe on roebuck was tender towards johnson and was genuinely meant to save him and the treaty he had made with the english government in settlement of the alabama matter the article raised a storm the london standard said shrewdly that their contemporary had exactly caught the accent of the worst examples of western journalism the liverpool papers declared that the dinner was to be politically neutral the misstep was made the result did not fall heavily on reverdy johnson for his ministerial career was doomed in any case along with the presidency of andrew johnson who appointed him nor did it fall upon laird and roebuck it fell upon england the treaty concluded with reverdy johnson was angrily rejected by the senate in april eighteen sixty nine i had the pleasure of writing in the daily news a hearty welcome for the new minister john lothrop motley no appointment could have been happier 
americans walked proudly no other american was more honored among serious readers and thinkers than motley in presence manners social accomplishments he was the ideal minister the misgivings about grant and they were many were cleared away by this one appointment we were now to have a new and nobler america during my life in london there were ten different american ministers to england and i knew them all concerning mr hay's career there i cannot speak for i returned to america soon after his arrival but surely none of the rest were received with such welcome as motley or parted with so sorrowfully the reputation of the united states never received a more damaging blow than that which humiliated and ultimately proved fatal to motley his wife and daughters were the finest types of american womanhood no receptions in europe were more elegant than those of the noble minister and his family and motley was assiduous as he was polite in all the functions of his office one morning when his removal was announced by cable i went to see him i found him alone in his office and his pallor frightened me his voice however was calm and when i desired to know whether he could name a time for some conversation with me on the removal he asked me to remain then but he could not understand the event he was left to amazement and conjecture he was not conscious of the slightest deviation from his instructions and could not readily bring himself to believe that the president was capable of sacrificing him because he was the friend of sumner who had defeated his grant's cuban scheme in my biographical introduction to motley's history of the dutch republic g bell and sons i gave with the assistance of his daughters a careful sketch of motley and must resist the temptation to repeat it here among the pleasantest of my pilgrimages was one to the regions of shelley to his monument in christ church and the relics of him in boscombe house the great charm however of this excursion was due not to the dead poet but to one living sir henry taylor whose philippe van artevelde had excited enthusiasm among us at harvard he still held his position in the colonial office but passed half the year in his pretty cottage the roost at bournemouth one could hardly imagine a fitter environment for a poet lady taylor daughter of lord monteagle had wit as well as beauty and was rich in memories of the eminent people of her time there were also several daughters they were all gratified by responses from america to sir henry's works and had just been delighted by a visit from charles elliot norton lady taylor in her girlhood was a pet of wordsworth and the intimacy continued to the end of his life wordsworth she said rarely made a pleasant impression on visitors if a gentleman had come all the way from america to see him and he chanced at the time to be interested in the mending of an old glove he would go on for an hour about that glove he was very plain in appearance once when talking to his wife he said casually that was when as you know my dear i was better looking but my dear replied mrs wordsworth you were always very ugly a lady who took his portrait said she thought lichens were beginning to grow in his wrinkles lady taylor said that wordsworth had so long lived among the rocks and woods that his naturally rough visage gradually acquired the color of wood and stone and he might be almost mistaken for a part of the scenery there was a warm friendship between the taylors and the tennysons lady taylor told me several anecdotes about the laureate 
at a grand naval review she and a few other ladies had persuaded tennyson to go despite his dread of being observed in public when they were off on a boat tennyson turned to her and said with apparent distress i knew how it would be see that company on that yacht looking at us and we are looking at them returned lady taylor tennyson smiled and for the rest of the day enjoyed the scene sir henry walked with me to boscombe house several miles away it was a beautiful and soft autumnal afternoon and the way was through a pleasant landscape i never saw a man who had so much the look of the poet he was then about seventy but save for the white locks that fell around his handsome face the years had touched him gently he had entered the colonial office in eighteen twenty four and told me he had served under twenty-two foreign secretaries the one he liked best being lord aberdeen the first thing he remembered to have done in office was to prepare the materials for a speech by canning he had never gained money by his literary work and never thought of receiving any his six volumes were labors of love among the many typographical errors in the first edition of carlyle's autobiographical essays one amazed the old friends of sir henry taylor who was described as a man of masked vivacity no phrase could be more ludicrously inappropriate and none more appropriate than what carlyle really wrote marked veracity his grave and noble face snowy beard and fine figure had attracted the artists and i once saw a beautiful painting representing him as king lear beside cordelia sir henry had a warm friendship for carlyle and said he was the only living man of his acquaintance whose conversation equaled that of coleridge whom he had also known well sir henry's own conversation was i am sure quite equal to that of coleridge he spoke in a gentle tone and had no views to urge with reference to the agitations of the time occasionally he spoke as if all these contemporary affairs impressed him as distant dissolving views Quote, how few of those who at one time seemed to spread themselves over the country have now any sway at all over it i remember when the one power seemed to be scott no two met but to speak of the wizard of the north i knew several people who thought him greater than shakespeare seriously but now the young people read thackeray and dickens and think scott dull even byron has become tedious to the people with their tennyson and browning and coleridge lamb southey well they last better but their day of doom is coming wordsworth is one of the few who has gained with posterity his ode to immortality however is not so great as coleridge's on dejection but i am not a good reader i find my office occupation keeps off ill health better than anything else f w newman the guardian of john sterling's children informed me in eighteen sixty three that he had been told on good authority that the influence which carried sterling into the clerical order was love the kinsfolk of his bride-elect demanded that he should be in some profession he hated all professions and was not in health for any newman was convinced that archdeacon hare reconciled sterling temporarily to the idea of a liberal christianity but when he sterling first came to clifton quote, he was secretly already gone far beyond end quote. these were newman's words a good many young skeptics have been led into holy orders by filial affection and among these was a poet who seemed almost a reappearance of sterling namely wathen mark wilkes call 
with him i enjoyed a certain intimacy, and he told me that although he was a devotee of shelley at the time of his graduation at cambridge university coleridge opened for him a mystical vestibule into the church eighteen forty three by which the hopes of his parents were fulfilled Carl's particular difficulty had been the dogma of eternal punishment but once inside he found that he had been misled by mr smoothed away coleridge in supposing that the odious doctrine was no longer insisted upon in the church the story of aquinas wrestling all night in prayer for the salvation of satan gave birth to Carl's aquinas one of the miraculous poems the picture of the monk sitting all day as if stone till the sun went out then flinging himself on the bare floor is all touched with pigments of his own heart's blood the grapple with that one dogma was followed by a revision of all with the result that call quietly retired from the english church but he was to learn that the church of that period though unable to make a man believe in a future hell could do something towards inflicting anguish upon him in this life he had a sister with whom he had enjoyed perfect intimacy and who was sympathetic with his thoughts she bequeathed to him guardianship of her two children who loved and were beloved by him when the testamentary nomination was made in the court of chancery there was introduced a postscript from a private letter he had written indicating his descent from the creeds of the churches the children of his sister herself unorthodox were thus given over to strange hands this incident profoundly mortifying in itself was the means of spreading abroad his heresies alienating friends and relatives and causing sorrow to many the retreat which he had hoped might be quiet was turned into a violent rupture with a past sweet in associations but there followed the compensation his spiritual and intellectual kindred sought him out he enjoyed the friendship of the finest spirits of his time above all he made the acquaintance of the one lady perhaps then living whom a very heretical providence might have trained to be his wife it was indeed an ideal marriage mrs call was the daughter of the eminent dr brabant of bath financial founder of the westminster review that admirable and learned gentleman whom i had the happiness of knowing had taken the utmost care for the education of this beautiful daughter beautiful she was even in advanced age she was learned in hebrew greek german and french she and her father as she told me read together strauss's leben jesu when it appeared and dr brabant resolved that it should be translated into english she had made the acquaintance of marion evans afterwards george eliot miss evans did not know ancient languages but had studied german and miss brabant invited her to work with her on the life of jesus while these two were thus in collaboration miss brabant became the wife of c c hennell author of the inquiry into the origin of christianity which so influenced theodore parker the translation of the leban jesu was then more than half finished and the remainder was given over to miss evans except that mrs hennell continued to assist in notes requiring knowledge of greek and hebrew mrs hennell was happy and well-to-do and by her private direction the life of jesus appeared with the name of marion evans alone to the surprise of the latter 
mrs call thus had the intellectual training of being a wife of the two most scholarly freethinkers of england of that time and while her opinion or criticism on grave themes carried weight with serious thinkers her womanly sentiment and delicate humor charmed them mrs call's first husband had two sisters one was sarah hannell who wrote many mystical religious works the other married charles bray of coventry they resided at rose hill coventry mr bray was the author of a work on the philosophy of necessity which had much interested emerson mrs bray wrote a little book for children on conduct manners and duties a book that ought to be in every home and school i know of no other book of the kind i remember well the happiness of my first visit to rose hill i went up on saturday morning and stayed over sunday on sunday after breakfast i was present at the usual religious service of the family whose members were mr and mrs bray and sarah hannell this service consisted of the rendering on the piano of handel's messiah the whole without words or singing it was a beautiful day the low windows opened on the flower garden and the landscape dressed in living green and blossoming trees there we sat souls who had passed through an era of storm and stress and left all prophetic and messianic beliefs but found in the oratorio hymns of an earth in travail after the triumphal close of handel's music had died away we all walked out and passing through the streets of old coventry visited the house where marion evans lived in loneliness till she was discovered by the braes the house was still named birdgrove and the sweetest songster in that little grove had been emerson the braes told me much about her early life whose pathos and sorrow make the melancholy undertone of george eliot's works when we returned mrs bray showed me a sentence written by emerson in her notebook quote, if the law of love and justice have once entered our heart why need we seek any other End quote. to this she had added quote, emerson as he sat in the drawing-room window july twelfth eighteen forty eight End quote. Sarah Hennell brought out for me to copy a letter written to her by her sister immediately after Emerson's visit. Yes, we have had the great spirit amongst us, and I feel as you do how much greater his thoughts, which we had before, have become from the corroboration they have received from his presence. I have quite a grateful feeling that he has been under this roof, though only for a few hours. But alas, we shall see his face no more. He is rolling on the waves now towards home he said his wife insisted on being on the shore to meet him though they lived twenty miles inland he was taking a rocking-horse for his two little girls and a crossbow for his son and his eyes quite sparkled when he spoke of how much they would be grown in nine months my head was full of the preparations for our great juvenile fete on thursday when emerson's letter came to say he should be here at midnight to stay only till wednesday afternoon so i ran upstairs to put the best room in order and directly after in came mr and mrs flower and kate martineau of course they wanted to see emerson above all things and had invited him to stratford charles went to meet him at the station he looked around the drawing-room and said quote, coventry is a very nice place End quote. and the next morning was so very easy and pleasant that i wondered where all my awe had gone to he talked about Indian mythology and Stonehenge. 
after breakfast in walked the flowers again they had set off at five and came to propose taking him back with them to stratford as they had found a note from him on reaching home expressing a wish to see shakespeare we were rather disconcerted as mary ann miss evans had just come and we meant to have a nice quiet day all to ourselves but it was plain emerson wished to see stratford and we thought it right he should so we all set off by train to leamington then in cars to stratford and had a most delightful ride we four in an open carriage from stratford again this was the pleasantest part of the day to us and he talked as if we had been old friends he was much struck with mary ann miss evans expressed his admiration many times to charles quote, that young lady has a calm serious soul End quote. he regretted very much he had no more time to stay among us he came home to tea with us and so he departed with much warmth pressing charles to go and see him in america it is well for us a great benign soul does not often come to disgust us with common life no that's a very false sentiment common life would not be common then it was a comfort the next day to find that hannah had been providing the needful for common life while we had been soaring aloft and that the cakes were made ready for the children at night the fete was most successful we had a fiddle and flute to make music and they danced on the grass End of chapter thirty five part two